Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. When you wake up Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning and welcome to Tuesday. It's nice to have your company on this fifth day of July. I hope um, you're not in any flood-affected areas. Uh, I am. Uh, I'm out Wallachia Way near Warragamba, Silverdale, and right at this moment we can't get out. Uh, Well, we can, effectively, by travelling an extra hour and a half via Burragarang Road and an area around Picton and all the rest of it. But I'll be working from home over the next day or so, and I hope you're okay. You do have to feel for these poor people in areas like Windsor and Camden that have dealt with this ongoing flood situation, what, not once, some areas, not twice, but three times inside the last 12 months. Awful stuff. We'll give you an update on the latest uh, flood information and, of course, we'll keep you informed with our updates from Air News. We'll have bulletins on the half hour. Uh, Not only the latest news, but flood updates as well. All right, well, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, returns home to Australia today. There's been some criticism of, quote, Airbus Albo, with many on the right and uh, critics of Anthony Albanese and remnants of the LNP who are basically calling him out for his trips overseas. I think it's ridiculous. It really is. I mean, what Anthony Albanese has been doing is repairing a number of important international relationships and, you know, um, NATO meetings come up. And Australia is a part of NATO. And it's important that a new Prime Minister gets to these events. Now, the trip that was held initially in secrecy, obviously, uh, the news broke with a couple of journos being with the Prime Minister, that trip to Ukraine, to Kiev, I think was an important trip, not only uh, for uh, the, the fact that it provides... Uh, at least a vision of Australia standing behind democracy. That's very important. Uh, Someone who summed up the whole situation much better than me is writer and author Van Badham from The Guardian, good friend of mine, and I'll read out what she had to say in relation to this whole where's Albo situation. Uh, You can't compare what Anthony Albanese's been doing diplomatically overseas uh, with you know, um, with the criticism levelled against Scott Morrison taking a a family holiday to Hawaii during the bushfires, completely and utterly disingenuous and very different. Anyway, I'll get to that story. Uh, the latest train situation. Well, the Premier of New South Wales, Dominic Perrottet, wrote an op-ed yesterday in uh, the newspapers saying that he was going to take uh, the rail, tram and bus union to the industrial umpire, and he did so yesterday. Uh, we'll hear what the unions had to say in response to that. Scams. Well, they continue to increase. Yesterday, the Australian consumer uh, watchdog, the ACCC, launched a report, released a report, and the figures are astounding. In one year alone, Australians, we're told, lost a conservative $2 billion to scammers. Unreal. I was targeted by a scammer just a couple of weeks ago, the old Microsoft scam where, you know, something flashes up on your computer 
and you need to call a so-called Microsoft technician on a 1-800 number, uh, the next thing you know, of course, they're in your computer and stealing all of your banking information. Now, I, uh, I dodged a bullet with that one because I'd heard of this and I knew very clearly that my, uh, my information was secure because I'd recently only updated my uh, malware, my software. Uh, and the antivirus and all the rest of it. But look, a lot of people, particularly those aged over 60, uh, the most vulnerable elderly people in Australia, well, they still are being tricked by these scammers. And the scammers are becoming more and more proactive each and every day. Every time something's done to prevent them, they find a way around it. And organised crime is also involved in this. So I'll get to that story for you as well. Um... Are we looking at another Pasha Bolka? Uh, you know, around 15, 16 years ago, we had a problem up there in uh, Nobby's Beach, Newcastle, where a big cargo ship ran aground during an East Coast low. Well, fortunately, I think we've avoided this happening at Watamola on the South Coast near the Royal National Park, uh, with tugboats pulling out a stricken cargo vessel overnight. We'll get the latest on that for you. And the infighting continues within the Liberal Party. Wonderful story the other night on Four Corners spoke to many disgruntled Liberal MPs who say that Alex Hawke and Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison and others need to stop the infighting, change the culture, lest the Liberal Party not survive. So I'll get Melissa McIntosh, who uh, is one of my local MPs out here in Western Sydney. Now, of course, she's uh, Liberal, but I have a lot of respect for Melissa. Uh, She spoke to Four Corners and uh, detailed how she was bullied by one of these factions. Anyway, it's an interesting story and I think it highlights one of the big problems the Liberals had leading into the last election and possibly had something to do with their defeat. Anyway, all those issues I'll get to. As I mentioned, we'll get the news on the half hour. Flood updates for you as well and some great tunes on this Tuesday. Welcome to it. Marcus Paul in the morning on the 5th of July. Great to have you come. Okay, welcome back on this Tuesday morning. Well, the rains are slowly easing, thank goodness, with the Bureau saying that we should see that low move off the coast and further north, certainly away from flood-affected metropolitan Sydney over the next 12 to 18 hours. That's good news. But the news not so good, of course, for Sydney's west and southwest and also the northwest of the city. Last night, Sydney's rivers continued to burst their banks and flash flooding affected the south and northwest, including at an area called Preston's, not far from the Georges River in Liverpool, where elderly patients needed to be rescued from the Preston's aged care home. It's called Preston's Lodge. A spokesman for the agency said fireys walked a number of residents out of the home as it came underwater. More than 40 calls for help had been recorded in the area, according to Fire and Rescue New South Wales. Now, of course, major flooding continues at Windsor, North Richmond, Menangle and Wallachia, with heavy rain and spill from Warragamba Dam continuing to wreak havoc in river-adjacent Hawkesbury Nepean communities. Areas around Penrith and Camden are also being affected by flash flooding. Now, the Hawkesbury River at North Richmond yesterday peaked at 14.18 metres. Now, that level was slightly below the March 2021 flood, so that's last year, but higher than the March flood of this year, 
Some of these communities, including North Richmond and, of course, also Camden, are dealing with their third major flood in less than, what, 15 months. Now, a number of areas are still deemed high risk, including areas around Windsor Road, parts of Elizabeth Drive and parts of Cowpasture Road, all of these areas around the Western Sydney parklands. Uh, of course, you need to follow the advice of the State Emergency Service. There are plenty of road closures and flood uh, warnings remain in place in a number of areas. Of course, we'll keep you up to date on the latest in our news bulletins on the half hour. But Warragamber Dam <clears throat> continues to overflow. With gigalitres of water pooling into majorly flooded northwest Sydney areas. The spill volume has fallen to around 380 gigalitres per day. It was sitting at a high of around 515 gigalitres per day. Now that's equivalent to around one Sydney Harbour's worth of water. That's how much was spilling. Forecasters say that the worst is behind us, but the Bureau of Meteorology's recent Windsor flood warning states that flooding is only on the rise in that area. New South Wales Rural Fire Service deployed Megalong Valley and South Katoomba uh, agencies to assist New South Wales Police in setting up a flying fox system over a flooded causeway last night. The system was used to supply ration packs to several isolated groups of campers. And that's just one of many stories. Of course, there are thousands of residents in Sydney's northwest that face their third life-threatening flood emergency this year as the rampaging Hawkesbury River continues to rise above peak levels and isolate communities. Emergency services, including the SES, have worked tirelessly to respond to some 3,500 requests for help and rescue some 116 people since the flooding event began. Despite the East Coast low weakening across the state, the Bureau warned that up to 200 millimetres of rain is likely to dump across Sydney's coastline, the Blue Mountains and parts of the Illawarra continuing into this morning. We can only hope the rain does start to ease off. Now, Premier Dominic Perrottet said 32,000 people were impacted by 71 evacuation orders yesterday and 64 evacuation warnings, figures that are expected to rise during the week. Mr Perrottet thanked the Australian Defence Force for the work that they were doing on the ground. Uh, he said we have currently 100 ADF personnel based in northwest Sydney. Dangerous weather conditions have also created rough seas now, of course, we had that incident yesterday where a bulk carrier was being tossed around in the ocean and perhaps was at risk of beaching itself or crashing into the rocks at the Royal National Park at Watamola Beach. 21 crew members are on board. Now, they anchored themselves with a double anchor to try and secure the vessel before tugboats arrived and overnight they were trying to pull the stricken vessel out into deeper waters, some 20 kilometres or so off the coast. It got as close as two kilometres late yesterday. Anyway, we can only hope that uh, the crew there are able to repair the damage to that vessel so that it can continue on its way. It left the Illawarra, uh, the, uh, the region of Wollongong, just the other day, but ran into trouble in, what, swells of up to five to eight metres.
All right. Um, elsewhere around, of course, New South Wales, unfortunately, they've had to turn off the sewerage in the Hawkesbury area. A sewerage pump in Hawkesbury was unfortunately switched off yesterday amid the worsening weather. The move was made by Hawkesbury City Council yesterday morning for sewer pump station C on Macquarie Street in Windsor to be switched off. Now situated in Sydney's northwestern outskirts, Windsor has been submerged under severe flooding, as we know, for the third time this year. Uh, So people are being asked to refrain from any water activities in the sewer catchment areas. Now those regions include Windsor, South Windsor, McGrath's Hill, Pitt Town, Bly Park, Windsor Downs and and Clarendon. The problem is sewerage flowing into floodwaters can contain harmful microorganisms such as bacteria, viruses and others. Direct contact with sewerage or surfaces contaminated by sewerage can result in illness, including gastro. You don't want to get that. All right, well, Hawkesbury Council are conducting regular checks on manhole covers and dislodged covers are being barricaded in local streets. Impacted people in the region are being warned to stay alert for flood water contaminated with sewerage. Hand washing after every contact with the flooded area is advised along with using diluted bleach to sanitise contaminated areas and objects. Of course, parts of New South Wales are experiencing their fourth major flood in 18 months, with around 30,000 people subject to the evacuation order or warning yesterday. Thousands of Greater Sydney residents have been left stranded after more than 150 millimetres of rain fell in the last 24 hours in some areas across the state. Uh, did I, I read there was some 800 millimetres recorded in the Southern Highlands yesterday. I mean, those figures of rainfall are just phenomenal. All right, well, again, our thanks to the wonderful volunteers from the State Emergency Service. Thank you to the Fireys, the Ambos, the First Responders, Police, everybody involved with keeping Sydney safe during this current flood crisis. Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back. Tuesday morning. Great to have your company here on Starter FM, the iHeartRadio platform on TuneIn and on the Prawncast, the podcast. Well, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has emerged from a media blackout in the Ukraine to confirm that he's been briefed on the state's latest flooding disaster here in New South Wales. And on Thursday, he will join New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet for a visit to the region. Now, after returning from Europe, where he met with leaders at a major security summit, NATO, where he also tried to patch up Australia's relationship with France, tick, and touring war-torn Ukraine in, in virtual secrecy because of security arrangements, Anthony Albanese will visit flood-ravaged New South Wales. Hopefully, that'll shut up those on the right that for whatever reason, well, obviously political reasons, and it's disingenuous to compare Anthony Albanese's overseas trips in diplomatic terms with Scott Morrison taking an Hawaiian holiday with his family while the country burned. I'll get to that in a moment. But the Prime Minister was in transit yesterday and overnight, and he will arrive in Perth later today. Now, his office has confirmed he will visit flooded areas of the Hawkesbury on Thursday. 
Albo was in a media blackout at the behest of the, uh, the Australian Defence Force in Ukraine, with the PM offering a brief comment about the floods when he returned over the Polish border late yesterday. He tweeted, have crossed into Poland from Ukraine and left radio silence. My first actions were briefings on New South Wales flooding and ensuring federal assistance is being provided. Well, it is. The Australian Defence Force have been on the ground in flood-affected areas of Sydney since the weekend, unlike previous flood events where they were criticised in being late to the party, so to speak. Now, from Poland, Albo spoke with Premier Dominic Perrottet and Federal Labor's Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt to get an update on the widespread flooding impacting Sydney and New South Wales. His office said Mr Perrottet was pleased with the federal support given so far for the disaster response. Now, Mr Albanese will be given another updated briefing on the floods when he reaches Perth later today. And as I said on Thursday morning, he will join New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet visiting flood-affected areas of the Hawkesbury Nepean. Meanwhile, uh, as I said yesterday online on the Facebook page, please give us a follow there, Marcus Paul in the morning. Uh, there have been many people, particularly those on the right and from the usual suspects in the media, criticising the Prime Minister. Um, with memes popping up, where's Albo? Uh, you know, Airbus Albo, all the rest of it. The PM was being criticised for not being in Australia as floodwaters rose. I thought that was a little unfair. I asked the question, should Albo have gone to the Ukraine to lend support? But many couldn't help but compare his absence to that of former Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Now, we know that Albo pledged Australian support for the rebuilding of Ukraine after its war with Russia is over. He unveiled an extra $100 million in support for the country after meeting President Vladimir Zelensky during a two-hour meeting. He also importantly put on the record that he believed the attacks in his right, the attacks in residential areas in Ukraine were nothing short of war crimes. They absolutely were. Now, I noticed my friends and colleague Van Badham uh, wrote yesterday. So this week, what remains of the Liberal National Party tried to rally their online myrmidons in a Where's Albo campaign. The kings of political false equivalency were trying to Wakiki, the new Prime Minister, insisting he was missing in action. I guess because that's what they would do. Rather conclusively not so. Turns out the PM wasn't tweeting his feelings because he was in a literal war zone, becoming the first Australian Prime Minister to visit the Ukraine, affirming our alliance with that country, visiting the scenes of Russia's war crimes, pledging another $100 million in support for the war effort and meeting President Zelensky. Oh, and Albo took a crisis meeting about the floods along the way. I'm thrilled, says Van, that we have a Prime Minister who is showing up for the defence of democracy and standing against violent imperialism. Where's Albo, you say? Where it matters and it's awesome, says Van Batten. Well, what do you say? There's a post up on the Facebook page. I'd love to see your comment there. Well, he threatened in Sydney's newspapers yesterday that he was going to do it. The New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet has taken his fight with the unions 
to the industrial umpire. The rail union and the state government are fighting it out at the Fair Work Commission. Uh, I'm talking about the RTBU, the Rail, Tram and Bus Union. Now, we know that uh, they had planned further industrial action. Rail workers and the state government will go head-to-head in front of the nation's industrial umpire, with tensions between the parties escalating. Now, the New South Wales government began proceedings against the Rail, Tram and Bus Union in the Fair Work Commission yesterday. Now, Dominic Perrottet said the unions wanted families to foot the bill for their demands and were impacting small businesses with their industrial action. He said yesterday, the funding that comes for public sector wages doesn't come from me. It comes from mums and dads and families across our state who pay taxes and how unfair it is on them who are not earning wages at the same rate as the public sector. For the public sector to be demanding that if everybody else pays the debt for them to have a substantial increase at their expense. The Premier went on. We shouldn't be inconveniencing our parents, our school children, our communities, our small businesses. We've had small businesses close for months during the pandemic. They couldn't make a dollar during the pandemic and those small businesses rely on public transport every single day. Well, what does the rail union want? The demands from the rail, tram and bus union, which led to this industrial action across New South Wales. They want safety changes to the new intercity fleet to allow rail workers to stick their head out of the control room and physically check the platform. The government has made a verbal offer to fund these changes, but the RTBU is seeking them in a written contract separate to the enterprise agreement. Look, I think at the end of the day, uh, the union secretary, Alex Classens, has made it pretty clear that it's not just about the safety of the new intercity fleet. It's also about wages. Now, Alex said Mr Perrottet's rationale for going to the Commission was disingenuous. He said yesterday, not a single one of our actions so far this year have stopped trains. Most are designed purely to target management, like today's, that's yesterday's action, which involves trains sounding their whistles as they leave stations. The union is seeking to have the government's offer to fix safety concerns in the new inner city fleet in writing, separate to, as I mentioned, the enterprise bargaining agreement. Mr Classens yesterday said we're hopeful that the Fair Work Commission will be able to get the New South Wales government to confirm in writing what its real intentions are so we can finally get the safety issues on the new inner city fleet sorted and get back to negotiating a fair enterprise agreement. So there we go back to the dollar figure. He said we need to get the safety issues on the new intercity fleet sorted. Then we can get back to the negotiating table with all other unions involved and discuss the wages and conditions of the state's rail workers. Now, a hearing was held between both parties yesterday afternoon. Union's New South Wales Assistant Secretary, Thomas Costa, was in the meeting and said the government was seeking a complete termination of all industrial action from the Electrical Trades Union and the RTBU. I guess we'll just have to watch this space. But, as we know, 2022 is the year of industrial strikes. Where do you sit? Uh, Again, I've mentioned I you know, um, have some sympathy 
in particular for uh, those in the public sector on the front line during the pandemic whose wages have not increased in line with inflation. However, um, I probably have more sympathy for teachers than I do train drivers. Anyway, that's where I sit. What about you? Let me know on the Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back on this Tuesday morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Now, this is a story that caught my attention while I was off last week, and it comes from the Queensland city of Ipswich. The council up there has been inundated with complaints after it's, for some unknown reason, decided to name a bridge after a jailed sex offender. It's their former mayor, Paul Busali. Now, Ipswich Council is set to now overturn this decision to rename a bridge and road after the aforementioned sex offender. You believe this? Council had removed signage from Paul Pasali Bridge in Springfield, that's in Ipswich, after a vote last year, as well as Pasali Drive, which is understood to be named after his parents. However, Pasali's former Deputy Councillor Paul Tully moved to rename the street and bridge after the disgraced mayor on Thursday of last week and received the support of five of nine councillors. Now, yesterday afternoon, one of the five apologised for the decision. In a statement, Councillor Russell Milligan said he intended to work with his colleagues who voted against the move to repeal the decision. He said, and I quote, having had time to reconsider and hear the concerns of my community, I admit that I had made the wrong decision. I intend to work with my fellow councillors to amend my mistake. Without reservation, I unconditionally apologise to anyone who was a victim of crime, especially sexual assault, and in particular, anyone who was a victim or was a victim of crimes committed by the former mayor of Ipswich, Mr Paul Pisali. Now, yesterday afternoon, Mayor Theresa Harding and councillors Marnie Doyle, Andrew Fechner and Kate Newselman, who voted against the Thursday decision, called for a special council meeting next week. Now, in a joint statement, they wrote, Our residents right across the entire city reacted immediately to the decision of this council last week. They were outraged and extremely disappointed by the decision. The sentiment was also shared by many community leaders across our state who have come out publicly to condemn the decisions. All councillors will now need to decide if they intend to continue honouring a man convicted of serious crimes, including sex offences, or if they will listen to the community and reverse their decision. Now, the Mayor's decision means the majority of councillors support the repeal and the bridge and road will not be reinstated in recognition of the disgraced Mayor. Well, finally, some common sense up there in Ipswich. But why on earth did this councillor, Paul Tully, move in the first place to rename the bridge after the convicted sex offender and former Mayor, Paul Pisali? As I mentioned, at least one of the councillors who voted for the move has apologised and the mayor has called a, a new meeting next week to have the whole thing overturned. But I think this councillor, Paul Tully, has some explaining to do. Marcus Paul in the morning.
Tuesday morning, great to have you company. Well, the rail, tram and bus union have come back to me. Following my comments this morning in relation to the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet's opinion piece in yesterday's newspapers and, of course, him going to the the regulator, the industrial umpire, uh, their (laughs) note leads with the title New South Wales Premier Spits the Dummy at the RTBU. Dear members, this morning, uh, so it was an email from uh, yesterday, the Premier of our state spat his dummy out, upset about ongoing industrial action being taken by railway workers, nurses and teachers. The Premier proclaimed that the public sector was paid too much and that we should accept that our pay shouldn't go up. Ironically, to justify not increasing pay, the Premier stated cost of living pressures, such as an interest rate rise, that mean people are already doing it tough. So the Premier wants to reduce our pay so we can deal with ever-increasing bills and prices? Question mark. The Premier has also said that he's taking our union to the Fair Work Commission again in an attempt to stop us exercising our fundamental human right to take industrial action against our employer. We'll fight it again, just like we did last time. Once again, the only people that win from court action like this are the lawyers. When will, this is the RTBU and their statement, when will the New South Wales government learn that the only way to stop industrial action and to win the respect of workers is to give us a safe railway and the fair paying conditions we deserve? The answer is probably never, while we have a government that fundamentally despises organised labour. On it goes. What members should take from yesterday morning's dummy spit, both in writing in the Telegraph and in the press conference, is that we are getting to them. The collective might of our union should never be underestimated. We have been advised that the New South Wales government filed in the Fair Work Commission to terminate our industrial action. Keep an eye out for your emails and and on your phones for the next couple of days for updates as things progress. So that was from the union yesterday. So obviously, uh, they will continue their fight. And uh, of course, that statement was signed off by Alex Classens, the head of the Rail, Tram and Bus Union in Sydney. Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning. Now, you don't need me to tell you that scammers are on the rise. In fact, they've stolen over $2 billion from Australians in the last year alone, more than double that of 2020. And the latest is a Microsoft scam, which I have some personal insight into. A couple of weeks ago, when I was sitting at home in the the home studio in the office on my own laptop, I received a, uh, uh, a note, effectively, uh, with a, a warning um, alarm going off saying that I was under some kind of scam attack and that I needed to call a 1-800 number and speak to a Microsoft technician. Straight away, the alarm bell started going off in my head, considering that, you know, my home computer and all of my software and everything is protected, um, you know, with antivirus and anti-scamming software, malware, if you want to call it that. Anyway, I noticed yesterday there was, and this, I just dismissed it, deleted it and moved on with my life. Uh, because I didn't fall for it, but sadly, obviously, a lot of people do. And yesterday, a report on the ABC caught my attention. 
and it's a similar scenario to what I faced a few weeks ago. Days after the call from, quote, the man from Microsoft, Brian realised he had been scammed of his life savings. The well-spoken caller had rung out of the blue and offered to fix a problem, taking control of Brian's computer and then withdrawing $38,000 from the retiree's online bank account, leaving only 300 bucks. The 76-year-old was devastated, saying it's absolutely terrible. I haven't been too well since. I haven't been able to sleep properly. I've lost my life savings. Now, unfortunately, stories like this have become increasingly common, with the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission reporting a record increase in scams in the last 12 months, many of them targeting vulnerable elderly victims. Scammers stole more than double the amount from Australians in 2021 than they did the previous year, according to the ACCC's Targeting Scams report, which was released yesterday. The report compiles data from the scam reporting portals Scamwatch, which is operated by the ACCC, and Report Cyber, which was developed by state and federal police and the Australian security agencies, as well as major banks, money remitters and other government agencies. And the statistics are sobering. Reported losses to all organisations totaled almost $1.8 billion, factoring in the estimated number of unreported scams. Actual losses were over $2 billion, according to ACCC Deputy Chair Delia Rickard. She said, and I quote, even our figure of $2 billion plus is still underestimating the amount lost. It's a very scary figure. And we know this year is going to be worse still. Well, what is behind the rise? Losses from scams offering fake investment opportunities more than doubled to $700 million in 2021, according to the ACCC report. A major cause of this was the rise of cryptocurrency investment scams, which saw reported losses increase 270% to $99 million. Now, a typical method involves scammers setting up fake investment and cryptocurrency trading platforms to steal money from people looking to invest in cryptocurrency. This sometimes morphed with romance scams, so that the targets were introduced to the fake investment platforms through their love interest. People don't understand how to go about purchasing cryptocurrency, but they also don't want to miss out, according to the ACCC. And as a consequence, we are seeing so many people lose large sums of money. There was also a large increase in losses relating to pyramid and Ponzi scams, largely due to Ponzi investment scam apps. Now, these modern versions of pyramid schemes see targets innocently invest money in fraudulent schemes that only serve to pay existing investors. Other than investment scams, the other type that saw a big increase was payment redirection. Now, this involves scammers impersonating a bank, a business client, or even a property settlement agent to get the target to send them money. Remote access scams, like the one that targeted Brian, have also gone up. That's the Microsoft scam. Do not fall for it. Losses reported to Scamwatch almost doubled to over $16 million, with people aged over 65 losing almost half the money. Now, according to the ACCC and Delia Rickard, the scammers are getting better. 
I've heard stories from overseas where traditional organised crime groups are getting out of drugs and into scamming, she said. There's a huge fortune to be made. And there's a whole marketplace on the dark web selling everything you need to know to become a scammer. Now, the figures from last year show that the rise in reported scams during the height of the pandemic lockdowns was not an aberration or a one-off event. Pre-COVID, in 2019, Australians lost an estimated uh, sorry, $634 million. In 2020, that increased to $850 million. At the time, the increase was attributed partly to the pandemic and people spending more time alone and on their phones where they were vulnerable to such things as email phising. Now, email phising involves scammers impersonating a bank or other authority to trick targets into giving out personal information, including passwords. The number of reports phising scams or reports of phising scams increased 183% from 2019 to the year 2020. It may have been hoped that fewer Australians in lockdown and therefore isolated from one another would see a decrease in phising attacks. But in 2021, these attacks increased by 62%. Last year even saw the largest scam text message campaign in Australian history. From August last year, thousands of Australians received text messages about missed calls, voicemails, deliveries and photo uploads. The message asked them to click on a link. Doing so, downloaded malware that gave scammers access to passwords and accounts. Now, reported losses from this scam, which was known as Flubot, were under 11 grand in 2021, but the real figure was probably far higher. What people lost was a huge amount of personal information. According to the ACCC, they managed to access many of people's personal banking postcodes. So I don't think we've seen the full extent of the financial losses from that. So I guess the important question is what is being done? Well, the big increase in losses comes after years of concerted activity by the Australian government agencies trying to stop scammers. The frustrating thing is, according to the ACCC, they've never seen more actions on scams than in the last two years. It's a bit like an arms race. Every time the government puts in place a successful strategy, they work it out. An example of this was scam calls in December 2020. The telecoms industry introduced a voluntary industry code to detect and block the calls at the recommendation of the Australian Communications and Media Authority. In 2021, the telcos blocked 357 million scam calls, resulting in a reduction in reports of such calls to the ACCC of almost 50% this year. But scammers, they were onto it, they simply changed their tactics, focusing instead on SMSs, like the Flubot scam. In response, Telstra introduced an SMS scam filter in April of this year. Again, scammers changed their tactics. We're now seeing an increase in scams on encrypted apps like WhatsApp. But banks could also do more according to the ACCC. Now, in Australia, banks processing online transactions do not check whether the account name matches the account number. This makes it easier for hackers to conduct payment redirection scams, impersonating a business or another legitimate party, and asking the target to send payment to their account. 
Australian government agencies have been calling for banks to introduce name verification, also known as confirmation of payee, since at least 2020, but so far the banks have refused. Now, according to the ACCC, the introduction of confirmation of payee in the UK saw a significant reduction in payment redirection scams. People are losing hundreds of millions of dollars. The technology is available to stop this, and we would like to see it introduced as soon as possible, according to the ACCC. All right, well, what does 2022 look like so far? Early figures suggest losses will double again this year. Reported losses to Scamwatch are already approaching 2021's total. Now, Brian's 38000 bucks, and his loss in the Microsoft scam is part of that figure. The retiree from Albany and WA was scammed just weeks ago and has already sold a beloved Commodore to restore the bank balance. Dear, oh, dearie me. Don't fall for them. Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back. Tuesday morning. Well, it's been, uh, what, nearly two months now since the federal election and the infighting continues among the Liberals who accuse each other's factions of thuggish behaviour and being a cancer that's infected the party. Yeah, recriminations over the coalition's federal election loss have boiled over spectacularly with senior Liberal Party figures engaging in a vicious blame game over the impact of factional infighting of the result. Four Corners on the ABC has spoken to dozens of Liberal Party members about the coalition's devastating loss, which has been blamed in part on the failure to pre-select candidates in more than a dozen New South Wales seats until weeks before the election date. The situation was further inflamed when a New South Wales Party official and businessman, Matthew Camanzuli, took the Libs to court in a failed bid to force pre-selection votes for ordinary branch members. Speaking for the first time about his actions, Mr Camanzuli launched a broadside at former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's representative in New South Wales, rival faction leader and then Cabinet Minister, Liberal power broker Alex Hawke. Now, he told Four Corners, I think the bloke's a cancer. I think Alex and the movement that he's built is a cancer that has infected the party and it needs to be excised. This cancer needs to be cut out. Now, Mr Morrison and Mr Hawke, of course, as I mentioned on this program numerous times, they've both been accused of holding up the process so that they could install their own captain's picks without a regular pre-selection. And I've even had staunch Liberal supporters tell me that that was no way to run a campaign. Now, former Liberal Party Treasurer Michael Yabsley has also chimed in. He says there was World War III between the factions in terms of the candidates who had been nominated. It then became a standoff. Now, Alex Hawke has been accused of failing to agree to a timetable for candidate review meetings that would have allowed pre-selections to proceed. The delays culminated in a federal intervention in the New South Wales branch. The intervention protected Mr Hawke from being challenged for pre-selection by a candidate from the rival Conservative faction in his own seat of Mitchell. 
Now, declining to be interviewed on the ABC, Mr Hawke said in a statement the specific allegation made by some that I delayed or had any ability to delay nomination review by not attending key meetings is false. As per party requirements, I have no role in deciding matters in relation to my own pre-selection. Now, Mr Kamenzuli, who was expelled from the party over his court challenge, said he did not know how Mr Hawke would have fared if he had been forced to face a pre-selection. He said, but I do think it's appropriate for Alex to have faced pre-selection if there are people that thought they would be a better representative for the seat of Mitchell than Alex Hawke. And I personally don't believe that would be very difficult. Obviously, no love lost there. However, supporters of Mr Hawke have hit back, accusing Conservative faction forces aligned with Mr Kamenzuli of thuggish behaviour that required the intervention of Scott Morrison and Mr Hawke to protect them and others. Melissa McIntosh, who won the prize Western Sydney seat of Lindsay from Labor in 2019, well, she claims she was ambushed last year at a meeting of her local branches when 20 new people from out of the area turned up and took over all of the official party positions. She said they aggressively took over that meeting, every single executive spot that belonged to local people. They shouted over the Minister for Women, Maurice Payne. They shouted over me. These were people we'd never met before in our lives, a bunch of blokes who were working specifically to take me out. Now, Ms McIntosh, who is aligned with Mr Hawke and Mr Morrison's centre-right faction, credits them with heading off what she believed would be a challenge to her pre-selection to contest this year's election. She said, and I quote, if it wasn't for Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Alex Hawke, I wouldn't have been the candidate for Lindsay, and I can definitely say we would not have won the seat. This would now be a Labor seat. Now, Miss McIntosh also took aim at the governing body of the New South Wales Liberal Party, the state executive, over what she believes has been its lack of action on the issue. She said when she raised the behaviour before the state executive, she was intimidated. She claimed that state executive is made up of factional warlords who have nothing better to do than act in a thuggish way toward members of parliament like myself. Ms McIntosh said for 14 months the party ignored her request to investigate the behaviour at the branches meeting. Deputy Liberal leader Susan Lee, who was shielded from being challenged for pre-selection by a Conservative candidate in her seat, also defended Scott Morrison and Alex Hawke. She says she blamed the factional games and the infighting that led to this point and would have seen good Cabinet Ministers, good first-term members of Parliament and good marginal seat members ousted potentially. The general public is completely turned off by what they see as factional games. That's why we have to get our house in order. Miss McIntosh warned that the Liberal Party urgently needed to change its culture if it was to attract more women. And this is what I think is vitally important. She told Four Corners, We can have all the quotas in the world, but it will be a revolving door of women if we don't address the culture within the Liberal Party to make it a more supportive culture where complaints or issues of concerns are taken seriously. She went on to say it's unacceptable that the Liberal Party is allowing this type of behaviour to happen. I can't encourage other women, professional women, to leave their careers, to spend time away from their families, to pursue a career where there is this type of thuggish behaviour happening within the Liberal Party. Well, some changes need to be made. Otherwise, they'll find themselves in opposition for quite some time.
Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back, Tuesday morning. Now remember, I think it's around 14, maybe 15 years ago, the Pasha Bolka cargo ship that ran aground on Nobby's Beach uh, near Newcastle that made headlines around the world. The 76,000 tonne bulk carrier was stranded off Newcastle's Nobby's Beach as Australia was lashed by uh, not one, <laughs> but five East Coast lows, the most significant of which was referred, of course, to uh, now as the Pasha Bolka Storm. Well, as we fast forward to 2022, and we've got more storms with flooding that's occurring around New South Wales and Sydney in particular. Well, we've also got uh, a, uh, a potential Hasha-Bolka situation happening off our south coast. Now, fingers crossed it won't get to that stage where this vessel will run aground, but an operation is underway to tow a cargo ship that have been drifting toward rocks amid wild seas near Sydney to deeper waters. Tugboats are now towing the MV Portland Bay out to deeper water over two to three hours. Uh, well, they started it yesterday afternoon with the crew set to stay on board. Now, the Port Authority said the ship's master asked to keep the 21 crew members on board because he's confident the engine failure that led to uh, this thing basically running out of steam and uh, drifting perilously close or perilously close to Watermola Beach, or even worse, not the beach, but the rocky enclaves around uh, that national park area. Anyway, uh, the, the captain is confident that they can fix the thing. Yesterday, at the, uh, at the height of the storm, they dropped both anchors, not one, but two anchors, in order to steady the ship while a number of tugboats arrived. Now, John Finch, who is the Chief Operating Officer at Port Authority, said the operation involving three tugs coordinating a towing operation to move the vessel into safe, deeper waters out to sea. I think they're trying to take it from around about two kilometres off the coast to 20 kilometres off the coast. He said the priority is getting this vessel and its crew into safer waters and away from land and the potential of grounding. Uh, the tugs arrived late yesterday and connected to the ship, so the operation uh, commenced to raise its anchors and to move the ship safely out to sea in a slow and controlled manner. Now, I think at one stage it was uh, moving at around three kilometres an hour, so it'll take some time. The conditions made the towing operation very difficult. In eight metre swells, the vessel uh, rising and falling and rolling and it obviously will put a lot of stress on the equipment and the tug lines. The bulk carrier lost power and began drifting toward the cliffs at the Royal National Park south of Sydney not long after it left the Illawarra down at Port Kembla, Wollongong at 7.30 in the morning yesterday. There was a plan initially to airlift the crew, but it was abandoned as too dangerous for the time being. Uh, yesterday, the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet said emergency services were also on their way to the cargo ship to try and airlift to safety. Eight non-essential crew. Uh, the ship was battered by heavy rain and strong winds, part of a deluge affecting that 500-kilometre stretch of coast all the way from Newcastle to Batemans Bay in the south of the state. Uh, the Bureau... And their spokesman, Jonathan Howe, said those actions across Sydney 
Uh, currently experiencing a little bit of reprieve in the rain, but a gale warning and severe weather remains current. So we just need to hope that this ship has got safely out to sea and we'll continue to update you on our news bulletins as to how that operation unfolds. Marcus Paul in the morning. Thank you for your uh, company this morning. That's it for today's program. If you missed any of it, we'll have a a podcast, our prawncast, up a little later in the day. You can uh, follow the link on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the Morning. Please give us a a follow and a like there. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You'll also find us, of course, on Instagram, Marcus Paul in the Morning. Please take it easy. Thank you again to all of those first responders and, uh, of course, the wonderful volunteers from the State Emergency Service who have been working tirelessly with a number of rescues and call-outs due to the flood emergency in north and uh, south-western Sydney. Fingers crossed the Bureau have it right and this uh, east coast low that's been causing all this deluge moves further off the coast and further north and we can finally get another clean-up underway. I mean, you have to feel, don't you, for the people of uh, areas of, like, Camden and Richmond and Windsor that have dealt with this uh, flood scenario three times inside 12 months. I mean, a number of these uh, flood um, incidents have been called one-in-100-year events. Well, hang on, that's not true. We've had similar situation three times in one year. Anyway, uh, the time for debate on climate change and the time for a debate on whether or not the raising of the Warragambit Dam would make any difference, that time will come. But in the meantime, we just have to continue to keep people safe and assist in the clean-up. All right, enjoy the rest of the day. Uh, We'll talk to you again tomorrow around Australia on Starter FM, the iHeartRadio platform. Tune in and on the broadcast. Marcus Paul in the morning, back tomorrow. Bye for now. You ain't heard nothing yet. Marcus Paul. All right, goodies. This will get you the goodies.